Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 24 of History Books and Wine podcast. I'm Eliza Knight, your host for today. I am a USA Today bestselling author of Scottish historical romance with irresistible heroes, courageous heroines, and daring adventure. And under my name, E. Knight, I write rip-your-heart-out historical fiction that crosses landscapes around the world. Today, I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, and that is shoes. Yes, I love shoes. I might be obsessed. I love shopping shoes. I love wearing shoes. I love trying on shoes. I love looking at other people's shoes. I just find them utterly fascinating. But first, let's have a talk about what I'm drinking. Tonight, I'm drinking a bottle of wine that I bought in Paris just for this special occasion, my evening with you. It is a Chateau Franc Boris Saint Emilion. Don't know if I said that right, but I tried my best. It is a Bordeaux blend of about 85% Merlot, 12% Cabernet Franc, and 3% Cabernet Sauvignon. From the website, I found this bit of information very interesting. Perched on one of the many hills that make up the Bordeaux wine-growing landscape, this medieval town of Saint-Emilion needs no introduction. Its wine-growing landscapes were the first in the world to be listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Its prestigious appellation covers about 7,500 hectares, which is 18,530 acres, of very different soil types and terroirs. The diversity and abundance of its wine make up an infinitely nuanced picture that is one of the main masterpieces of a region that has so many great vineyards. Then I read this. Uh, the statue of Louis XIV on horseback majestically overlooks the courtyard of honor at Chateau de Versailles. He was the king who paid tribute to our wines, declaring Saint Emilion nectar of the gods. I particularly found this very cool because I was just in Paris and at Versailles staring up at this very same statue. So let's give a cheers to Louis XIV. Cheers! In 2017, this wine won a Challenge International Devin, and there is a nice gold medallion on the bottle to show for it. While the website didn't have a description of the flavoring, I'm going to give it a whirl of my own. So, let's see, hold on. Swish, swish, right? I am finding the wine to have a delightful bouquet, good coloring, well-defined legs, I'd say, a rich flavor with notes of, hmm, cherry, currants, vanilla, maybe some spice. Um, how did I do? In any case, drinking this makes me crave going back to France and sit in a cafe while watching the world around me. Sigh, I really do miss Europe. We had an epic family vacation there for about two weeks before our oldest daughter heads off to her first year of college, and it was really incredible. I've been posting pictures on my Facebook page and posting pictures of different wines and champagnes I've been finding on our History Books and Wine podcast pages. Now for the topic at hand, or foot. Haha, <laughs> yes, that was lame, I know, but I just had to do it. Okay, so let's just take this one step at a time. Okay, sorry. I swear, no more jokes. That was the last one. I may or may not have had about half this bottle before I started recording, so sorry. <laughs> okay, but seriously, let's talk about shoes. According to archaeologists and paleoarchaeologists, shoes were invented about 40,000 years ago. 40,000 years. That's like 
a really long time ago. But I guess as long as we've had feet, we've been wanting to protect them, right? So the earliest forms were probably made from soft leather wrapped around the feet, possibly stuffed with leaves and such for insulation, keep them warm or protected from whatever they were walking around. They may have resembled sandals or moccasins. For certain, the oldest known sandal was made from sagebrush that scientists found from about 8,000 years BC. And the oldest leather shoe was made from cowhide and the seams sewn together with a leather cord dating to about 3500 BC. Despite only having these pieces of evidence, it is believed that shoes were worn well before this, and they deduced this by studying not the big toe, but the smaller toes, which seem to have decreased in thickness throughout the centuries. Why? Because wearing shoes results in a decrease of bone growth. The earliest designed shoes were more like sacks wrapped around feet to protect early beings from rocks, debris, and given that the early evidence found was in colder climated areas, the shoes were perhaps worn to protect against the cold. Early natives in North America wore similar types of shoes made from hide, but also adorned with beads and other decorations. Natives most likely went barefoot during warmer months. Flip-flops or thong sandals date back to ancient Egypt, where you can see them painted on the murals, but ancient Egyptians weren't the only ones wearing them. Thong sandals were worn by many and made from papyrus, palm leaves, and other plants, rawhide, wood, or straw. I just want to take a note here and say how incredible it is that they were able to make shoes out of leaves and plants. Because if I went out into my backyard right now and started plucking leaves or shredding bark or plucking, you know, grass, finding hay, like, I would not be able to make a shoe out of it. I would make a pile of junk. Now I kind of really want to try this. Maybe that's the wine talking, but seriously, maybe I need to start making some shoes out of vegetation. I'm going to try it. <laughs> to the ancient Greeks, wearing shoes was seen as ornamental and indulgent. Most people went barefoot. Athletes who participated in the ancient Olympics did so barefoot and also naked. Their gods were often painted barefoot. Allegedly, Alexander the Great conquered his empire with barefoot soldiers. Ouch. Can you imagine having to fight a war barefoot? Gotta protect those tootsies. Interesting side note here. Also, Fidipides, Fidipides, I don't know how to pronounce this name, but he was the first marathoner. He ran from Athens to Sparta in under 36 hours barefoot. When the Battle of Marathon ended, he ran back to Athens to inform them of the victory. Madeline, Lori, and I are running a half marathon in February, in case you haven't heard us talk about that. And I assure you, we will be wearing shoes, very comfortable shoes and socks for extra layering. If you want to follow our progress, check out the hashtag Hishram run. But in any case, the point is we will not be running barefoot. Romans who later conquered the Greeks and most everywhere else did, however, love to wear their shoes. They saw clothing and shoes as a sign of power and a necessity for living in a civilized world. Let's not make any jokes here about the irony of that. <laughs> Gladiators! <laughs> so the middle-aged people, I mean, people of the Middle Ages, haha, sorry, another bad joke. Okay, certainly the people from the Middle Ages had a wide range of shoes. We've all heard of the soft leather boots or slippers, espadrilles, jute sandals, etc. But what's more fun are the extraordinary, and that's what I want to dig into here today. Have you ever heard of a pouline? Even the word pouline sounds scandalous, and guess what? It was. Those shoes had an abnormally pointed toe, which was called the pouline. The tips could be ridiculously long. Who thought this was a good idea? Seriously, who who came up with this? And did anyone ever trip on their pouline? Was the pointed toe for when you gave someone a swift kick in the head? Or was it for men to say, hey, my shoe tip is bigger than yours? Or perhaps the ladies tittering behind their hands were saying, well, you know what they say about the size of a man's foot determines the size of his blah, blah, blah. Perhaps the pointed tip was somehow to exaggerate where men were lacking. 
Another bad joke, sorry. Vulgar young men would actually paint the tips of their pulleens flesh color and wiggle them in innocent maidens. Seriously, how little things have changed. So, there was some talk within the Roman Catholic Church that the pulleen shoes represented a phallic symbol, duh, and they were completely inappropriate to wear. Probably so. They even blamed the Black Plague as God's revenge for wearing pulleens. But people ignored the warning and continued to break out the pointed toe off and on to this day. Seriously, these pointed shoes do tend to come back into style. I owned a couple of pair of pointed toe heels about a decade ago or so, and one of them was actually comical. (laughs) I wish I'd kept that. Anyways, most shoes were made of soft leather, fabrics like velvet, silks, and brocades. And if you could afford it, you would line your shoes with fur to keep your feet warm. Because of the price of shoes, most peasants went barefoot during the summer months. Another interesting shoe from the medieval era is what are called bear claw shoes, aka duckbill shoes. What? Who thinks of these things and names them this? Like, who's like, I'm putting on my bear claws. I wish I could see it in person, seriously. Anyways, these shoes were heavily padded and puffed out at the tips. Lots of showy embroidery and slashed at the tops to show the hose you wore underneath, taking on the wide shape of a bear's claw, or a duckbill, I suppose. These shoes became so huge at one point, they were noted to be 12 inches wide. Seriously, that's a ridiculous kind of shoe. How did you even walk in that? The wearer would have to waddle around. That's so sexy, am I right? And in fact, it was so ridiculous that Queen Mary I of England passed a law outlawing the great width of shoes, limiting their width to no greater than six inches. I can't imagine what must have been going on for her to have to enforce such a law. As a result, however, shoes did become slimmer later on, and I'll talk about that in just a little bit. So, next up, what do I have on my list? Ah, rain boots. Before the invention of rain boots, or waterproof shoes, like galoshes, people had other inventive ways of walking around without getting their shoes wet or muddy or even covered in the muck from the streets. The answer was obviously clogs, but there was also another type of shoe called patents, which vaguely resemble platform flip-flops or sandals. Patents had a wooden bottom or a thick leather bottom with leather straps. The wearer would slip these contraptions on over their fabulous shoes and then walk as though they were on stilts very carefully. By the late 1400s, the Germans figured out how to make shoes inside out on a last type mold so that instead of both shoes being the same, it was more of a defining right and left. A last is a mechanical form that has a shape similar to a foot that would help shoemakers design their wares. Lasts were typically formed from wood or cast iron. Should be noted that the majority of people wore straight lasted shoes. Some were able to get wasted shoes, which were cinched at the arch of the foot. However, it wasn't until the 1800s in America that shoe lasts were made for left and right feet. In addition to the turnstile lasted shoes, it was also at this time that heavier soles began being attached to shoes. These simple turn shoes were inexpensive and great for people who couldn't afford more more fashionable, expensive alternatives. Now, back to how shoes changed after Queen Mary just decided to limit the width of the shoes. Obviously, they became slimmer, and I don't think that's hard given they were getting to be about 12 inches wide, but also a T-strap was added over the top. Um, during her sister Queen Elizabeth I's reign, mules and high-heeled slippers became stylish for court ladies. Their shoes would be decorated with fur trims and jewels. Somewhere along the way, fashions reversed for men and women. In the 17th century, it was very popular for men to wear heels and for women to wear flat slippers. I'm going to take a sip of my wine while you think about that. (sighs) So good. Okay. Both sexes wore square tips. Gone were the days of the pullines with the pointed tip. We're squaring it off now. Chop that pulline right off. Men's shoes would have deep cuffs and high tongues decorated with stiff bows, large or thin, spurs or buckles. Women's shoes might be trimmed with rosettes, ribbons, or embroidery. 
It was also at this time that King Louis XIV, same guy as uh, loved this nectar of the gods I'm drinking right now, um, who happened to be on the short side, wanted to increase his height, and he invented a heel with a wide base and tapered middle. Believe it or not, this type of heel is still the most widely popular type to this day for women's shoes. Thank you, King. During the 18th century, women began wearing heels again, and men started to wear thigh-high length boots. <laughs> Some still with heels. Okay, let's giggle about that for a minute. I, I know these didn't look like thigh highs, like heeled thigh highs that we think of, of ladies wearing today, but still funny. So along with these boots, they also started wearing flat shoes again made from leather. Side note here though, when I was in Europe for the last couple of weeks, where cobblestone streets and sidewalks are the norm, I cannot imagine wearing any type of heel there. I was only wearing little um, hiking boots, which, you know, was a half inch heel or so. And my heels were getting caught on the uh, the stones and the divots and all of that. And I tripped many times uh, when we were in a Roman fort. I blamed it on a Roman. I told my kids that a Roman ghost had pushed me because I actually did tumble down, <laughs> down a hill. It was very comical and my children said I felt like an angel. So I'm going to take that as the compliment. And also side note, no alcohol was involved with that. Just pure clumsiness and cobbles and heels. So perhaps actually I should have been wearing my, uh, my bear claw shoes. I probably wouldn't have tripped if I had 12 inch wide shoes on. What do you think? <laughs> so it was also during the 18th century when shoemaking became more of a commercialized business. Warehouses began to stock various shoes made by different shoemakers for consumers. And until the 19th century, shoemaking was a handmade craft. However, by the 19th century, many of the tasks that went into making shoes were becoming me mechanized. The small shoemaker was being replaced by factories. It was during the Napoleonic Wars that the mass mechanization of shoe production began because British soldiers were in desperate need of boots. Uh, an engineer by the name of Mark Brunel developed a mass production machine that fastened soles to the uppers of shoes with tiny nails with the support of the Duke of York. Despite this ability to manufacture shoes, when the war ended, so did the demand, and manual labor was much cheaper than the upkeep, upkeep of factories, so Brunel's business flopped. Not long after, however, with the Crimean War, shoe production for soldiers was back in full swing. A shoemaker by the name of Thomas Crick developed a newer, faster machine, and a few years later, one that he powered by steam. Also around the same time, the sewing machine was invented and greatly increased work. And amazingly, by the end of the 19th century, Humphrey O'Sullivan was awarded a patent for his rubber-soled boots and shoes, which were much less expensive to create than leather. And when I found this fact out, I was a little bit stunned because I hadn't realized before now that all of the heels that they had been making were actually formed from leather. And I would be very interested to figure out how they were able to do that and make it, you know, hard. Like, how could it be a heel? Different topic, I suppose. During the Victorian era, the very first ankle boots became popular for women to ward off any stares from men at their oh-so-sensual ankles. As a huge fan of ankle booties, I have to say, thank you, Queen Victoria. I love them. In colonial America, straight last shoes, same shape for right and left, were still being made at this time. Shoes were rigid with buckles and small heels. However, by 1841, the military was at least wearing right and left shoes. Thank goodness with all their marching, they finally had shoes that would form to their feet. And by 1851, left and rights were available for all. Yay! Can you imagine not having a left and right? I can't. Alright, let's go on to some fun shoe facts. Elizabeth I had 40 pairs of velvet shoes until in 1575 she decided to switch to Spanish leather. Don't panic, she didn't get rid of her shoes, simply had them refurbished. Allegedly, Marie Antoinette bought 200 pairs in one year, but this is nothing compared to her brother-in-law who had at least 365 pairs of shoes each year. That's crazy. 
I can't imagine a new pair of shoes every day for a whole year, every year. So as I pointed out earlier that men wore heels, men were the first to wear heels and they did this to keep their boots in stirrups, but also because it made them appear taller and more powerful. The higher the heel, the more significant your social standing. Sneakers, which were invented in the 1800s. Remember when I talked about that guy O'Sullivan who created the rubber sole? They got their name because the rubber soles allowed someone to walk silently and be sneaky. So sneakers really are for sneaking. Havanias, um, if you haven't heard of those, they're amazing flip-flops. I love them. And the word Havanias is Portuguese for Hawaiian. The flip-flops have a textured sole that represents rice straw. And on their website, they explain the design of the footbed was inspired by the zori, a traditional Japanese sandal. In the early 1300s, Edward II decreed that barley corn was to be used as a basis of measurement for shoe size. Three corns were equivalent to one inch. That means I would be a size 27 corn. That's actually really funny. If I went to the store right now, do you think if I said, excuse me, do you have any size 27 corns available? That they would look at me crazy? Yes, they would. I would get a good laugh. The most expensive shoes ever sold were Judy Garland's ruby slippers from the Wizard of Oz, which sold at auction for $660,000. That's over half a million dollars. According to Dr. Suzanne Ferris, buying shoes triggers the prefrontal cortex collecting spot, so I guess I won't be quitting my buying habits anytime soon. Shoes have played an interesting and important role in culture and in folklore. Think about the Wizard of Oz and the ruby red slippers, Cinderella and the glass slipper. And there was the old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She stuffed her shoe full of children. <laughs> That's all I've got for you today on shoes. Let's move on to what I'm reading. Wench by Dolan Perkin Valdez. I had the pleasure of meeting Dolan Perkin Valdez uh, a month prior to this recording. She was the guest speaker, the speaker of honor at the Historical Novel Society Conference and she really is an amazing person, a great speaker, and very inspiring. So, on to the explanation of her book. Wench, noun from Middle English, wenchel, one, a girl, maid, young woman, or a female child. Situated in Ohio, a free territory before the Civil War, Tawawa House is an idyllic retreat for Southern white men who vacation there every summer with their enslaved black mistresses. It's their open secret. Lizzie, Rini, and Sweet are regulars at the resort, building strong friendships over the years. But when Mawu, as fearless as she is assured, comes along and starts talking of running away, things change. To run is to leave everything behind. And for some, it also means escaping from the emotional and psychological bonds that bind them to their masters. When a fire on the resort sets off a string of tragedies, the women of Tawawa House soon learn that triumph and dehumanization are inseparable and that love exists even in the most inhuman, brutal of circumstances. All while they bear witness to the end of an era. An engaging page-turning and wholly original novel, Wench explores with an unflinching eye the moral complexities of slavery. This is a really deep book and brilliantly written. It really hits you in all the feels and I really, really admire Dolan's work and her writing and I can't wait to read everything that she writes. So next up is A Book of Mine, The Highlander's Enchantment. Lady Blair Sutherland has always followed the rules as the youngest of five, she spent years observing her older siblings misbehaving. But even more importantly, she's learned a lot about smoothing over disputes. On a playful dare with her cousins, Blair writes a fictitious note and puts it in a bottle. But at the last minute, she refuses to follow along and send it out to sea. As the months pass, she forgets about what she's written until a warrior lays siege to her clan's castle in her name, claiming her brother as a murderer. For a lass who's never been in trouble, her world is about to turn itself inside out. Laird Eden Rose has been looking for a way to prove himself to his clan after the murder of his older brother. 
When he was a lad, his father sent him to foster with Robert the Bruce, but never asked him to return home. Gone all these years serving his king, he has to make his mark and show his clan he has what it takes to lead by finding his brother's killer. When the possible answer to his deliberations comes in the form of a message in a bottle, he wastes no time in taking action. Though he hopes the man responsible for his clan's pain will surrender, Eden is not afraid to wage war. If he has to, he'll lay siege to the castle, rescue the lass, and take out his enemies, gaining the respect he seeks. When a Highlander rides on her brother's castle, Blair is aware the blame lies at her feet. If the only way to clear her family's name is by giving herself up to a stranger and helping him find the true assassin, for she's certain it's not her brother, then she's willing to be the sacrificial lamb. But once she's in Eden's arms, the only thing that comes to mind is wondering if his kiss is as powerful as his embrace. Having only desired to show his worth to his clan, Eden is now determined to prove himself worthy of Blair's heart. However, their passion comes to a halt when the one who wanted his brother dead decides the two of them are a loftier prize. So my question for readers this week is, can you drink red wine chilled? And is red wine only suitable for heavy meats or can you commit a faux pas and have it with fish? (laughs) I say drink your red wine any way you want. I drink it the way I like it, which is in a glass and with anything that I'm eating or with nothing at all. Um, I do like to have my red wine chilled a little bit. So sometimes I'll put it in the fridge and then pour it from there or... Um, I stick it in the fridge after I've had a glass and the next day it's chilled. I drink it both ways. But, technical answer, according to some, red wines should be served at 62 to 68 degrees. So that's slightly chilled, considering most people's homes are probably around 72 degrees or so. Um, Having it 10 degrees cooler means it is in the fridge a little bit. I say just do whatever you want. I prefer mine both ways. If it's winter, I like it not chilled. If it's summer, I prefer a glass of chilled red. So you do you, as the saying goes. And my question to readers this week is, do you like to wear shoes? I am serious. My kids hate wearing shoes, but I won't leave my room without them. And I have a wide variety that I like to wear for various reasons. So if you have questions for us, please email us. So that concludes today's podcast on shoes. I hope you enjoyed listening and learning about the different types of shoes throughout history. And I hope you join us again next week. And if you have any questions, please email us at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Our website is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com. We'll have the show notes for today's episode listed there. They can also be found on iTunes with our podcast. We're now on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and Alexa. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I'll be sharing lots of fun pictures from Europe. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And remember, you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. I hope you've enjoyed hearing some of my fun historical tidbits about shoes and wine today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out new episodes published weekly on Thursdays. Next up is our happy hour on August 1st. We'll be dishing on all things historical purses and other accessories. Woohoo! Have a great week.